Hello and welcome to Running Through History with Cotentialing. So what I want to talk about today um, is the scramble for Africa and the Berlin Conference. And we're going to take a look at how the Europeans met in the late 1800s without any Africans present and basically drew the boundaries for Africa today. Um, and how that has led to some political instability in in Africa today. And I think this is a very important subject to to know, to understand um, just the just the context for for Africa today, that when we look at some of the issues that plague Africa, Africa today, whether it's civil wars, whether it's genocides, whether it's poor health care, whatever it is that, you know, a lot of that can be traced back to what the Europeans did to the Africans back in the in the 1800s. Yeah. All right. So just to give a little context for the time period, that the meeting called the Berlin Conference or the Congress of Berlin, where that took place in 1884 and 1885, that is when the Berlin Conference, um, that's when 14... Um, Western nations, I say Western because it's also going to be America, will be in there too, Um, that they met and they forever changed the face of Africa, that they remapped the continent without consideration of established indigenous cultural boundaries, any linguistic linguistic boundaries. Um, So for us to understand how they got to that point, we need to go back in time a little bit, okay? Because when you think about the relationship between Europe and Africa, they've had a relationship for a long time. I mean, if we go back to, to the Roman Empire um, and the Punic Wars that uh, you know, Europe conquered part of, of Africa, North Africa at that, at that point in time, um, way back in the 200s, 300s, 400s, on in that, in that period of time, um, and so that Europe has always had a relationship with with Africa in terms of trade. That Europe has traded with North Africa for hundreds of years. Um, that the Trans-Saharan uh, trade route, that that um, is going to benefit Europe too. Um, that as the Europeans ventured into the Indian Ocean network, uh, Europe developed a relationship with the western part of Africa and the southern part of Africa. And so really what I want you to understand is that up until the 1800s, Europe has had a relationship with Africa that was one of, of, it was a respectful, it was about trade, it was about give and take, okay? That that part of the world, for the most part, was, 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 was left alone. It was out of that, um, you know, that, the, the colonial power of Europe, that, it was about trade, as I said, that Africa, for the most part, for hundreds of years, had remained outside the imperial scope of, of Europe. And so what we need to, to look at is why did that change? Why all of a sudden, if for hundreds, maybe thousands of years, Europe has traded with Africa, and it's been one of, of, of respect for the most part, why all of a sudden in the 1800s did that change? And so there's a couple of, of major world events that are going to make Europe look at Africa in a different light. And the first is, in the 
late 1700s into the early 1800s, the part of the world um, that had once been colonized by the Europeans, which was the Western Hemisphere, so Latin America, North America, you know, that had been the main focus of of of, of um, Europe's imperial wrath, I guess you could say, imperial focus um, from, from the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s. What starts to happen in the late 1700s, early 1800s, is that part of the world started to gain their independence, okay? And so when you think about that, what a colony is, when you think about what America was for England, or what Haiti was for France, or what um, Brazil was for Portugal, or Mexico was for Spain, when these countries are colonies, they are completely dominated by the mother country. So for instance, if you think about Haiti and France... Everything Haiti was like the richest colony in in the world, and everything that they had went to France. All of their resources. Um, it was not, not about trade. France literally just stripped everything from them and used it for their economic benefit. Same thing for Brazil and Portugal, for America and England, for Mexico and Spain. That these places in the Western Hemisphere were for the benefit of the countries back in Europe. Everything went to them. There was nothing really being done to help out the colonies there in the western part of the of the world. So what happens is late eight seventeen uh, hundreds, these countries start to get their independence. Haiti's first. There's it's a massive slave revolt, and they're going to gain their independence. Oh, actually, America was first in the seventeen hundreds, seventeen seventies. America is going to be first, and Haiti is going to follow, um, and then so on and so forth until. All of the hemisphere, by the time we get to 1820s, 1830s, all those countries are going to be free. They're going to gain their independence. And so what that means for Europe is that's a big loss of resources. Um, it's a big loss of money, too. Because a lot of, of the resources and the money that Europe got from that Western Hemisphere, they're going to use that to drive... The commercial revolution that started in the 1500s, 1600s, where um, countries like England started to move, move towards a more capitalistic model of, of an economy. Um, but the big thing, y'all, that they're going to use all the wealth and the resources for, England in particular, is they are going to use it to industrialize. Okay, so that's the second thing. So again, we're looking at why did the relationship between Africa and Europe change? There's a lot of factors, long-term factors that go into this. So the first is the loss of Latin, of, of the Western Hemisphere, that they lost the money and they lost the resources that were coming from that part of the world. And so the second part of this is going to be that Europe had been going through the Industrial Revolution. That starting in in the mid-1700s, England first, that's where it's all going to go down. Industrialization is going to start there, and then all the other countries are going to follow. They are going to go through the process of industrialization, all right? And when we think about that, y'all, and I'll use England as an example for this. For England, you know, the, the industry that got them on the path to industrialization was the textile industry, that they are going to find a way to to mechanize the textile industry that they mass produce and cotton's going to be the first one that they're going to mass produce um, a very durable cheap cotton good but the thing about it is y'all England didn't have any local sources of cotton where were they getting their cotton they were getting it from 
India was a big supplier of cotton for them, but so was America. Um, and so when we think about it in that way, um, Europe really depended on these colonies for resources that drove their their move towards capitalism and drove their move towards industrialization. Okay. And so they needed that. They needed, because of the industrial revolution, they needed new they needed new colonies. Once they lost the Western Hemisphere, they needed a place to get resources. All right? Um, and that is is why they're eventually going to turn to Africa. And this is the other thing, y'all, that when we think about the Industrial Revolution, one of the, the Industrial Revolution is kind of, it's divided up into two phases. Um, the first one is really just about, like, as I said with England, like the mechanization of the textile industry, but it was more about power within factories of moving from uh, water power to steam power. That was really kind of a big transformation in the 1700s. But as we get into the 1800s, the Industrial Revolution really produced um, some massive tools that Britain and others could use to build their empires. For example, steamships, so that they could get to these places a lot quicker. Machine guns. The Maxim machine gun is going to be huge. Exploding artillery shells. The telegraph. So that when we look at, at, at those things right there, that, you know, maybe, you know, Europe has had, a, again, a relationship with Africa for quite some time. You know, starting way back when, it was all about trade. And as we move into the, you know, the 1500s, the Atlantic slave trade, where the Europeans would go and they would trade, for slaves, and they would send it over to over to the Western Hemisphere to do work on the plantations and the mines over there. So Europe has always really kind of been aware of um, of African resources and the wealth that they could tap into there, but they hadn't they 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 had never really done anything about it. Um, Africa was kind of, of of a mystery; it was very difficult for the Europeans to go into for a number of reasons. One of the big reasons is just the diseases in Africa that the Europeans really couldn't survive as they moved into the interior of Africa. They could kind of set up on the on the coast of Africa, um, but they couldn't go into the interior of Africa because of the of the African diseases. But another part of the industrial revolution is advances in medicine, quinine, for instance. So, if we look at the, again the timing of the 1880s of that Berlin conference. That when the uh, Europeans lost the Western Hemisphere, they're going through this industrial revolution and they needed more resources, more money to drive, to further drive the industrial revolution. That's when they turned to Africa. That they literally realized the power that they had and their attitude towards Africa is going to change. That they, that the Europeans are going to view themselves as superior um, because they did. At this point in time, they had superior weapons. They had superior transportation. They had superior medicines. They had superior communications. So that, like, literally, that's fact-based evidence. Like, they superior in that way, but the Europeans viewed themselves as superior in many other ways. And I'll talk about more about that as we, as we go on. Um, but all those factors right there, y'all, that is what led, those two things is what led the Europeans to now view Africa as a nation that they could conquer, okay? 
that because they lost the Western Hemisphere and they needed the resources, they needed money, and because of the Industrial Revolution, they needed the resources, new sources of resources, and they needed new sources of money. And because of the Industrial Revolution, they now had the ability to take over Africa. That That is when the relationship changed. All right. It's going to go from one of being, again, about trade, about give and take, about developing a relationship. Because, I mean, even if we think about the Atlantic slave trade, a lot of the Portuguese and the Spanish would go to the Western coast, develop these relationships with the African chiefs, the village leaders, and they would and they would trade and they would trade for for slaves. Um, not always. I'm not going to. That's another topic for another day. Yes, yeah, sometimes they would go on raids and they would go into Africa and they would steal people. Um, but a lot of it was 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 um, it was traded for. So that is is just kind of the context for for this Berlin Conference um, in 1884. That again, as I said earlier, was going to forever change the face of Africa. All right. Um. So let's talk about about the Berlin Conference. Okay, just to give you guys an idea of what Africa looked like at the time of the Berlin Conference. And this is really a big part of, of African history is that, front, and, and again, the conference was in 1884, that up until 1884, Africa can really be described as a continent of just kind of stateless societies. That they had had empires come and go, like we've always had the Egyptian Empire, um, Mali came and went, uh, Ghana came and went. So they've always had these small empires here and there. Okay. But for the most part, African can be described as these, as this, as a stateless continent because a majority of the continent, I would say like 80 to 85% of the continent at in 18, in the 1880s was under the jurisdiction of about more than a thousand indigenous tribes. Okay, so if you literally were to Google, um, say, map of Africa, 1800, what you would see is you would see a couple of empires here and there, like literal boundaries. But what you all, after that, what you would see is just blank space. Okay, you would see literally blank space because the map of Africa can be defined again, thousands of different tribes who who speak different languages, different. Um, um, just different different tribes. That's really the only way to 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 describe it. And what has happened over the years is that these tribes have have constantly been warring against each other. So there was no unified um, group in Africa that when they that when the Europeans came in that they were able to to withstand the the force of the Europeans. Okay. So that really is kind of the context to to think about when you think about Africa at this point in time. And another reason why it was it was kind of unknown is that a lot of the Europeans hadn't they literally have not gone all into Africa to map out Africa. It's not going to be until the 1870s when two explorers named Henry Stanley and David Livingstone are actually going to go in and kind of kind of map out the final touches of of Africa. Okay, so that is, is kind of how Africa looked at this at this point in time. No major states, no major empires. I mean, no real ba- boundaries drawn. Just a couple here and there, but that's that's it. That's going to be it for the most part. So that is why when we look at the Berlin Conference, why it was so important. A lot of historians will kind of argue that this conference in the mid 1800s was kind of a of a watershed moment for Africa. 
Okay, because that's going to be when the European powers that they met in Berlin to discuss how to divide up Africa. All right. So the interest was there. You had kind of what was called the scramble for Africa at this at this point in time, that more and more people were becoming interested in Africa in the 1860s, 1870s. Belgium was interested. They're actually going to be the one who are going to send uh, Henry Stanley into to explore the Congo. Portugal had sent a lot of people, a lot of expeditions into into Africa. France was sending people in. Uh, England was sending people in. So a lot of people prior to this meeting were sending expeditions expeditions, explorers into Africa to kind of see what was there, to kind of look at what resources were there. Where was the salt? Where was the gold? Where were diamonds? Where were, where was rubble, uh, rubber? Where was ivory? And so the Europeans decided to meet in Berlin, not for really the sake of the, of the Africans, but to really for the sake of the Europeans, because what they wanted to do, because this, they felt like there was this, this scramble for Africa was happening, that people were literally scrambling to send expeditions into Africa to map it out and to figure out what was there. And maybe if they wanted to, to take control of something. Um, so the Congress was a meeting to really prevent a war between the European powers, okay, that they saw this scramble of Africa happening, that this was a reality, it was going to occur, and so let's have a meeting, they decided let's have a meeting where we can, we can talk about this, where we can civilly sit down and we can decide and draw um, the, the the boundaries of, of Africa, okay, um, and so they wanted, again, just like an orderly proceeding so that they that they could try to um, to get what was best for their country, and try to avoid conflict. Okay, so the meeting started in November of 1884, ended in February of 1885. Um, again, it's going to be about 14 countries who are going to meet there, and there are going to be no representatives for Africa. All right, and the other thing to y'all that is so. <laughs> That when we think about the boundaries that were drawn, um, that they did not know, didn't understand, and I think really had no desire to understand and no respect for the indigenous ethnic boundaries, the linguistic boundaries. Remember, I just talked about a minute ago, all those different tribes that were in, that were in Africa, all those stateless societies, that they didn't pay attention to that. And when they drew these boundaries at the, the Berlin Conference, a lot of these ethnic groups were going to be split up. A lot of, of tribes that had been war, had, you know, mortal enemies of each other for hundreds of years were put into the same country. That the boundaries that were set, so if you, you, again, if you went and Googled a map of, of Africa, 1880 um, or 18, 1850, and then Googled 1890, you would see the, the vast difference in the boundaries. It really reflected only the interest of the European powers who made those boundaries. Okay? Um, and it's going to be mainly Britain, France, Germany, and Portugal who are going to get the large pieces of, of Africa at this, at this point in time. Um, and so, yeah, so that's, that's how the, the fate of Africa was decided. It was decided without African influence. It was decided to, um, and they met to, to avoid a, a, um, a fight between, um, 
of the European countries. And so by the end of the conference, Africa was divided into about 50 countries. 50 countries going from just a couple with all these different tribes to 50 countries. And these boundaries, again, are going to wreak havoc on Africa by dividing people, bringing together enemies. And some historians will argue that the effects of this conference can still be seen today through just political fragmentation in different countries, ethnic violence, um, genocide, civil wars, that even decades after Africa achieved their independence, that that is, is still going to be a part of, of Africa, African history today. Um, so listen, so after, so even after the Europeans, so they met, so they met at this conference and they, you know, it was decided that Belgium, you get the Congo, um, you know, France, you get most of West Africa, so on and so forth, that once they left that meeting, their next job was to basically go and take what some historians have described as effective possession. You got to go and you have to effectively possess um, these colonies that you have been given at this meeting. So what do you think that means? Effective possession. That means that you are sending in political figures, but you're also sending in a ton of, of troops. That is how you effectively possess somebody is you go in and you send in troops um, and you effectively possess it or effectively control it in that in that way. So they're not just sending in political administrators, but all they're sending in um, a lot of military um, to, to control their African spheres of influence. And this, y'all, was super bloody and ugly because the Africans, even though they're not going to be effective at resisting the Europeans. They're going to fight. They are going to fight hard um, in the process of the Europeans taking effective possession. In some instances, it lasted a decade. In some instances, it lasted a couple of decades. And there's going to be an immediate loss of life for the Africans. Belgium, for instance, um, when they're going to go into, into the Congo... In the first um, five or six years or so, the Congolese people, five to ten million Congolese people are going to lose their lives in fighting against the Belgian people. Um, The only country who really is going to be successful in holding off the Europeans is Ethiopia. Italy is going to get control of um, of Ethiopia, and the Ethiopians are going to fight back, and they're going to be able to resist, and they hold their independence. Um. But it's going to be a long and, and bloody process for the Europeans to, to take over. But again, they eventually are going to, to um, do that. All right. Um, I'm, I'm going to come back to that. Because what I want to jump into now, the next topic that I want to get into is that, you know, once this meeting was all said and done, so all these white men were meeting in the 1880s in Berlin to decide the fate of a continent, um... They had to go again, and they had to go do it. But what they also had to do, y'all, is they had to justify this to their people. So what I mean by that is Belgium, for instance. And I use Belgium a lot because Belgium was one of the worst places. Um, they got the Congo, and they are no—I mean, just the atrocities in the Congo are just are just unbelievable. 
Um, and what my students are reading right now in class is um, Joseph Conrad's novel, The Heart of Darkness, um, which is about his experience in the Congo firsthand and, and what he saw. So what I mean by justifying to their people is Leopold II was the king of, of, of Belgium at this point in time. So what did he, the Belgian king, the Belgian government, tell the Belgian people what they were doing and why they were doing it? Why? Well, what did England say to, to their people? What did Portugal say to their people? So how did they justify it back home to the Europeans for what they were doing? for sending all these folks over there, these political administrators, these these military expedition expeditions. Why were they doing that? So let's talk about that. Um, the first reason that they were doing it, um, some would justify, is just kind of just the idea of nationalism. That in this time, there were a lot of, like, Italy was a new country, Berl- um, uh, Germany was a new country. And so when you look at it, 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 it that way, that they were um, really trying to, um, to, 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 to solidify themselves as a legit country in Europe, okay? And for a country like England, England and France to kind of keep their role as a leader, as a powerhouse in, in Europe, that they started to see this scramble for Africa, this, you know, this conference and going into Africa as... Um, as a way of getting not only influence in Europe and power in Europe, but power in the world. And so a lot of nations started to believe that they would not be great unless they got colonies. Okay? So it's one of the things that they would talk about to their people. And people could buy that. They could believe that, you know, that this was, okay, this is for us. This is for us. If we want to be competitive, if I'm Belgium, and when I want to be competitive with France, if I want to be competitive with Germany, then I, I got to do this. Okay? So for the sake of our country. So that's one of the first things that they that they would talk about as a justification. Another thing that they would talk about as a justification is the idea of social Darwinism. Or as Rudyard Kipling called it, the white man's burden. Or, as you can, if you were to read articles, I'm going to link to some articles about this in the in the in in the show notes. In my my class, we have a, a pretty good discussion about this. You can also describe this as racism, that they would saw imperialism as as their duty as the white people, as the white Europeans, to go and um, into and to bring. It was their obligation, their duty, their burden to bring their ideas, their culture, their um, democracy, their freedoms to the quote unquote uncivilized peoples in other parts of the world. And so when you look at it in terms of social Darwinism, that the Europeans literally be- believing that they were the superior race. Um, and that it was their destiny, their duty, their job as a civilized people to, to, to go into, uh, and, to, and to bring their ideas to, to Africa. Here's a quote from Sir Cecil John Rhodes who was a um, kind of a dictator of the Cape Colony, which is in South Africa. Um, and this is what he had to say about this. He's from Britain. This is his quote. I contend that we are the first race in the world, and that the more of the world we inhabit, the better it is for the human race. If there be a God, I think that what he would like 
me to do is to paint as much of the map of Africa British red as possible. So I think that kind of gives you an idea of their attitude of really viewing the Africans as uncivilized, viewing them as savage, viewing them as devil worshipers, um, and that they were superior and that it was their duty to bring their, their, their Western ideals. It was an obligation that they had to, to civilize people in the, in that part of the, of the world. Um, Yeah. So that's, that is, and so when you think about it in that way and, and how they kind of sold it to people at that point in time, um, almost as missionary work, okay, that it was their job to, to spread um, what some people have called the, the three C's, Christianity, um, commerce, and civilization, that that is what they were, that they were trying to, to do. Um, and so I'm saying this kind of cynically. Um, there will be people who will legitimately go to Africa as missionaries. There will be some schools that will set up. There will be some hospitals set up by missionaries. So I don't want to downplay that at all. But I would say that that, that idea of the white man's burden, social Darwinism, that that really is going to be the biggest justification that that the governments use to their people back home. However... Knowing what we know now about Africa, and one of the reasons why Heart of Darkness is such an important novel for people to read, is that we know that there was not a lot of civilizing going on. There was not a lot of of spreading of Christianity going on, because the real reason why they were there, and what they didn't talk about too much, this is really, I would say, the the least talked about in terms of justification for going into into Africa. And that's the economic part of it. That we think about the long-term causes of what I talked about much earlier about the loss of the Western Hemisphere, the Industrial Revolution, flat out, these European countries, they were searching for new markets, they needed raw materials, they needed money, they needed all this to keep driving the growing industry in Europe. They needed it because of the Industrial Revolution. And so when you look at how the Europeans treated the Africans, and you look at once the Africans left after World War II, there was not a lot of civilizing going on. That There was not a lot of, of true, you know, if we think about the ideas that Europe would hold to be true about freedom and equality, democracy, that None of that was being taught to the Africans. And what was being done to the Africans was, you know, the violence that started when they, when they, when they were taking effective possession of the continent, that that violence is going to continue. Um, and that they are going to enslave the Africans and make them work for them in terms of getting, for instance, rubber or ivory in in the Congo well, and what the and what the Belgian people did um, to the Congolese people that we know now what they were really doing and that again is why if you haven't read Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness I would suggest it it's it's hard to read it uh, in turn it's seventy pages long so it's 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 a very short work of historical fiction um, but the language is is very um, there's a lot of symbolism 
There's a lot of meaning behind almost every word on the in the book itself. But why his book was so important is because he wanted to dispel that myth of imperialism. Joseph Conrad went to the Congo himself. He went in 1890, and he saw firsthand what the Europeans were doing to the Africans, what the Belgian people were doing to the Congolese people. He saw the rape. He saw the murder. He saw the torture. He saw Africans chained up um, and was stunned by it. Because, again, what was being said back home was we're going there to do good work. We're going as missionaries. We're going as civilized people. And they and they went and they treated them terribly. Um, and he wrote that book to dispel that myth. He wanted the world to know that this really was this is what was going on in Africa at this at this point in time. Um, and then others will follow suit. I mean, his book was published in nineteen oh one, I think, early nineteen hundred. So not a lot changed, but more people became aware of what was happening in in Africa. Um, just, just to give you an, an example of this, Rudyard Kipling, the children author, he wrote, he kind of coined the phrase white man's burden and he wrote, um, a poem that was literally called the white man's burden. That was about this. It was about celebrating imperialism and glorifying it and, and what have you was, you know, really talking about the heroism of, 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 of imperialism because it was making the people that they were called colonizing quote-unquote better but then there was a response written to Rudyard Kipling this is all like 1899-1900 and it was called the brown man's burden and so you can kind of I want to read you guys a couple of lines from this so you can kind of see this is very sarcastic you can kind of see where they are calling imperialism for what it is it says pylon I'm not reading you all of it, just part of it. Pile on the brown man's burden, compel him to be free. Let all your manifestos reek with philanthropy. And if the heathen folly, he dares your will dispute, then in the name of freedom, don't hesitate to shoot. So that just kind of gives you an idea that as a response to the white man's burden. Um, 1899, um, kind of calling it for what it is. Here's another editorial written about the white man's burden, calling it for what it is too. He said it's uh this is gonna be also in eighteen ninety nine. This is an editorial from San Francisco, the San Francisco Call. And the last couple sentences of the editorial says this Rightly consider the white man's burden is to set and keep his own house in order. It is not required of him to upset the brown man's house under the pretense of reform and then whip him into subjugation whenever he revolts at the treatment. So, again, that's people calling it for what it is. That it was about the greed, it was about the wealth, it was about the economic part of it. Um, Because if that's how you civilize people, that's how you do it. You chain them up like animals, you starve them, you beat them, you rape them. You cut off their hands. Um, that, that's uh, I don't know what to tell you. If that's your idea of 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 um of civilization, all right. So I'm going to uh, stop that there. And so the last thing I want to to talk about is is what does it mean for Africa to today? You know, like in the end, that when we look at the Berlin Conference and we look at 
um, the violence that was used to quote unquote pacify the Africans and the continued violence of how they treated the um, the Africans. Um, how did this How did this happen? How did the borders happen? Um, how did that lead to to violence today? So when when Europe left Africa, it was at the end of World War II, and y'all, when they left Africa, it was literally like, pack your bags, we're out of here. Like, just drop of a hat, we're gone. And, one, and what happened, this is also proof that the Europeans didn't teach the Africans anything about freedom, democracy, how to govern, how to do any, no, no education. Then what's going to happen is that soon, as soon as the Europeans leave, there's going to be wars that are going to break out. Nigeria is a really good example of that. The Nigerian Civil War, this is from 1967 to 1971, that when we uh, look at what the um, uh, English did, that was a, uh, uh, Nigeria was a colony of, of England, they had put together the Igbo and the Yoruba um, tribes together. A lot and lot of tension between those two groups for centuries. They had, had a war against each other. So when the English left, um, the tribes that were in Nigeria, they Nigeria wasn't even like a thing to them. That was what the Europeans set up, and they crammed all those or the, all those different tribes together. What the tribes in Nigeria remembered is how much they had hate, how much they hated each other, and and how they had warred against each other for for hundreds of years. And so there's going to be a conflict that's going to break out for control of Nigeria. You can look at Rwanda too. The tension between the Hutus and the Tutsis. That once the um um in Rwanda, once the Belgian people left, Germany was there, and then and then the Belgian people were going to be there. Once they left, the Hutus and the Tutsis, they were embroiled in in um, a civil war that eventually led to the Hutus being victorious. In the 1990s, led to the genocide of the Tutsis. Um. That you can, again, you can trace a lot of, of civil wars and a lot of genocides directly back to the uh, boundaries that were set up by the, um, by the Berlin Conference. Um, but there, I mean, yes. So there is a, there is a, a big, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of stability that can be, that can be traced back to, to the boundaries. Um, but there also are going to be some problems um, just coming from the Africans th- themselves. That they, that some of the of the leaders, so if we think about, you know, in the Hutus and the Tutsis in, in Rwanda, that once the Hutus took over, how did they rule? You know, that they, that, that once they took control, once these civil wars were sorted out, um, how, how, what, what, what direction did they take their country? Did they rule as a dictatorship? Did they target the tribes that they that they that they defeated? Because what's going to end up happening is that a lot of the of these post-colonial African leaders are going to use um, some of the tactics of the colonizers that they're going to be just as violent um, to other tribes as the Europeans were to all of them. If that makes any sense, hopefully it does. Um, but yeah, that there, that, that yes, it is the instability in Africa today is a result of the boundaries, but there are a lot of other, other factors too, in terms of once the Europeans left, the direction that the countries took, 
after civil wars occurred, what's going to happen there. Um, But there are even, you know, even some instances today where some of the African countries are okay. That despite the boundaries of that, that were set at Berlin, that, you know, Kenya, for instance, is a good example. Tanzania is a good example. That despite they're going to be, um, a, the, you know, boundaries set up that cut through major ethnic communities, that put people together, that historically have fought against each other, that they've been successful. And I think Tanzania, Zambia, Malawi, I'm not going to say that they're without their problems, but that they have been able to, to kind of figure it out. That there have been some some solutions found in these countries to build cohesive political and social structures. Um, but not everybody's been able to do that. All right. And so I just feel like it's, that's an important factor for for us to know as citizens of the world that when we think about Africa and we think about some of the problems that they have, the role that Europe plays in it. Um, when it comes to, and even looking at the map of Africa, I think a lot of people don't r- realize that, that when you look at the map of Africa today, it was not a map that was chosen by the Africans at all. Um, and again, as I said earlier, really kind of seen as a watershed mo- uh, moment in history for um, for Africa, because they're going to be forever changed um, because of that that conference where about 14 or 15 Western nations are going to meet with no African input to decide the fate of a continent. Okay. So thank you for taking a listen today at all of this information about, about Africa. And again, I just think this is super fascinating that when we look at this, at this time period, because for imperialism in Africa, it wasn't just Africa. I mean, it was India too at this point in time. It was Japan was impacted. It was China was impacted. That Europe really, because of the loss of the Western Hemisphere and because of the Industrial Revolution, they're going to turn on Africa and Asia in a way that they had never done before. And we can see the lasting impacts of imperialism in these places today. Um. All right, so that is it. Hopefully, you, again, this podcast is running through history because I love running and I love history. And I feel like, for me personally, running makes me a better person, makes me mentally happier, makes me physically healthier. And, and understanding history that when we when we look at, at headlines in the news today, that it makes me just a more informed citizen that I can... I can I can participate in conversations better, um, and I can have some context. You know, when we look at the Congo today, and we and we and we see the problems in the Congo today or Nigeria today, who has been trying desperately to become a democracy in the last decade, then I can understand, and hopefully now you can understand why there is such a struggle there. Okay, all right, so. That's it for today. Hope you guys have enjoyed it. Thanks for listening.